Hey, this is Jeff Fry from the She Gone Podcast. I've been away for a little while, but I'm very excited to get back rolling with the She Gone Podcast. I've got a special guest today, longtime friend of mine, Mike Hamilton. We're going to talk all things baseball, scouting, how we became friends, um, video coordinator, everything. Mike's done so many things in the game of baseball. I can't wait to dive in. First, I'm going to throw it off to our producer, Dave D'Agostino. He's got a few announcements, and then we'll get to talking. Yeah, Fried Daddy, good to have you back, brother. Good to have you back. You've been traveling the globe, yeah. changing, the, changing the baseball world one kid at a time. And uh, I've recommended to many publishers, you need to do a comic book where you're a superhero and your kryptonite is that PVC pipe, those water jugs, uh, <laughs> things that repel you on social. So, But uh, real quick to our audience, 60,000, you guys know what to do. Five stars, write some great comments under here. This is going to be a fantastic interview because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like to do in Major League Baseball. Uh, to our sponsor, Blackout Coffee. Their slogan is Be Awake, Not Woke. I'm drinking my espresso right now in the Blackout Coffee mug. Make sure that you use Jeff Fry's code at the end of this. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, coffee's on Jeff this month, so 20% off at, at checkout. You can buy as much as you want for your holiday coffee. We'll probably extend it through the, the year if you do well by it. So drink your coffee. And to our buddy, Ted Kubiak, our very first guest on Real Voices of the Game. And this happens to be episode 382 on the network. So Ted Kubiak is got two books out I want people to take a look at for a stocking stuffer. One is Old School Chronicles, His Life in Baseball, and he tells what he believes has happened to his pastime. And then he has a great fielding manual, one of the best uh, fielding books I've read. Uh, it's called How to, Field a, How to Field a Ground Ball, real simple. And you've had some good experience with T-Bone there, uh, Jeff, and uh, Ted is, Ted is uh, right along those lines with him. So with that, episode 382 on Real Voices of Game, we got our She Gone podcast. I'll turn it back to you, Jeff, with our great guest here. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really excited today uh, to talk to my longtime friend, Mike Hamilton. Uh, we met in 1988 in Butte, Montana, and we've been the best of friends ever since. And I was thinking about it today before, uh, before we got on here. And I don't think we've ever had a fight in 35 years, which is unusual. Maybe one minor disagreement, but uh, Mike's a great baseball guy. He played professional baseball. He was a scout for the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau. He was one of the top video coordinators in all of baseball, and now he runs a select baseball organization affiliated with the Canes organization. But just an all-around great guy, great baseball guy, and uh, Mike was one of the, the people on the first video that I ever made that uh, that, <laughs> that started the She Gone movement. So anyway, without further ado, I'd like to introduce my friend Mike Hamilton. What's up, Mikey? Wow, Jeff, what a great introduction. Uh, I'll have to send you a little extra this month for, for that, uh, uh, for all those compliments. But uh, I'm really excited to be on this show. And Dave, I uh, appreciate you having me on and uh, just looking forward to, to talking some baseball. Yeah, we. Uh, so Mikey was a catcher by trade. He, uh, We met in 1988 in Butte, Montana. I got drafted in the 30th round and they shipped me off to Butte, Montana. I had no idea what I was getting into going to Butte, Montana, but uh, fortunately I got to meet Mikey and we were teammates that year. We had, uh, I was trying to think about it, Mikey. I think we had three, maybe four guys from that team make the big leagues, but we had a great season, made the playoffs. And, you know, maybe one of the most memorable parts of that whole season was our drive back to back to Oklahoma because we drove all the way and we listened to, I think we only had three cassette tapes back then. Um, the doors, um, 
uh, who uh, Steve Miller band and and maybe the outfield. And we listened to those things nonstop for about 1800 miles on our drive back to Oklahoma, Texas. Yeah, there were no satellite radio, no podcast back then. So it was uh, there was a lot of blank airspace. So we, we listened to those cassettes. Uh, I think you told me that to this day, you still don't like Steve Miller band because of that. Every time I hear him on the radio, I turn the channel. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to love him. That is God's honest truth. I used to love it. But uh, yeah, I mean, we had a, you know, our manager was Bump Wills. Um, Bump was a great guy. And we just had a, I mean, we had a great season. We had a great offense. Um, you know, brought in uh, a couple players from Japan. They were a hoot, Kenny and Denny. And uh, I mean, we really had a great season. It was unfortunate we didn't win in the playoffs. But uh, what do you remember most about the Butte, Montana? Yeah, you know, Jeff, that was my second year of pro ball, and and the and the year before, I had uh, I played in the Gulf Coast League, which uh, for people that don't know, it's you know you play in the middle of the day, in the middle of the heat, and the only people in the stands might be a girlfriend or an occasional scout, and then hurt players. So going to Butte and playing in stands with actual fans and music and, and all the stuff, it was it was fun for me. Um, and then uh, we had we had a ton of characters on that team. I, I kind of liken it to almost uh, like JUCO baseball. You know, we were uh, we've all bonded because of of being in Butte and our facilities weren't the greatest in the world. And, you know, the travel wasn't the, the, the best, but uh, everyone there loved playing baseball. So. Uh, there's just a ton of stories and a ton of great memories from that first year. Yeah. Well, where did we, I lived at the, uh, did you live at the Montana, was it Montana tech dorms football? Dorms? No, Jeff, you know, I was a veteran. So oh, yeah, uh, you're big league. We yeah, called you, so, your nickname yeah. was big leaguer. <laughs> so we had a couple of, we had a couple other guys. I think a couple of guys that got shipped in from Gastonia, uh, rented a brownstone in downtown Butte, Montana. And, uh, and because I wanted to have a car, uh, I drove from, um, from Port Charlotte to Butte, Montana, which is about as far, I think you can drive across the continental United States. And I did it myself. I remember they gave me $600. I thought I was rich uh, <laughs> and, and drove my uh, Honda Prelude all the way up there. And, uh, and we stayed in, in a brownstone, Robbie Nin and then, uh, Roger Pavlik ended up staying there with us. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's two guys um, that made the major leagues. And also we had Chris Cologne that made the major leagues from that team, Rob Maurer. Um, am I missing anybody else? I don't think Jose Hernandez is on that team. No, no, I don't think he was. I think he was in Gastonia that year. Yeah. Um, and then we, after that season, we go, uh, you know, spring train the next year, we drove together. Again, that was a long drive, about twelve hundred miles, and then uh, and then we both make the team in Gastonia, and then that was an even better team. I'm pretty sure our record was ninety two and forty eight. We won the first and second half. We had like seven all stars, I think nine or ten players off that low A ball team made the big leagues. A couple had great careers. One of them's a Hall of Famer, and you happened to back up that Hall of Famer and Pudge Rodriguez. Remember him when he was 16, 17 years old? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like to think I pushed him into, into <laughs> Cooperstown. You know, he, he had to keep looking over his shoulder just in case I was coming on. That, uh, I think that got him into Cooperstown. But, 
no, that was a hell of a team that uh, we had a lot of really good players and, and also some great coaches. You know, Oscar Acosta was there. Uh, he went on to, to do, you know, great things. Uh, and uh, Orlando Gomez uh, coached in the big leagues after that. Um, so we were that, that was a that was a loaded squad. No doubt. So, so let me let me think about. So we had, um, I don't think Robbie Nen was on that team, but we had Darren Oliver. Oh no, Robbie was there. Robbie was, was he there. Best yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had okay Nenner, um, Darren Oliver, me, Chris Cologne, Jose Hernandez, Kevin Belcher, Pudge, Pudge. Man, it's, I don't know if we had nine major leaguers off a low A ball team. That's pretty insane, and and we didn't win the championship, unfortunately. And so, but that I mean that was a great team. And somebody asked me the other day that I did a podcast, and they said, "Hey, what would you, what baseball movie would you most is most realistic to you? Like what you experienced <laughs> while you're in the Meyer Lakes?" I said, "Bull Durham." Yeah, I said, it it's almost <laughs> to a T what it was like. You know, the bus trips and the hotels and the goofing around on the bus. And I said, we even played in in. Sims Legion Park, which was in the movie Bull Durham, where they tried to do a rainout, and we actually tried to do our own rainout one time. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember talking with, and I can't remember his last name. He ended up working uh, in security with Major League Baseball, um, but he was an umpire. Mike was his first name, and I remember telling him in in uh, Myrtle Beach if uh, they would rain out the game, we would buy him a steak dinner. And uh, sure enough, they banged that game, and and uh, I bought them a dinner that night at, at the local uh, uh, Chili's, I think it was, that we were at. Yeah, and Gaston, we had Orlando, and then we had Crawdaddy. Crawdaddy was our first base coach, and, and he was a character and a great career as a college baseball coach. And So after that year, then we go back home, and then uh, the next spring training, I believe um, – I don't know. Did you get released the next spring training and go to the yeah. Cubs? Yeah, yeah. The 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 following year went to uh, spring training, and I think it was like the last week or so. Uh, uh, Marty Scott called me in and and gave me the uh, "We're going to go in a different direction" speech, and uh, and that was uh, that was it for my Ranger career. And you went off to the Cubs, right? Uh, Braves. 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 Okay. Yeah, uh, played Braves for a little bit and. Uh, kind of realized that my arm was not uh, as healthy as I was hoping. And uh, they, they they were really good, though. That was a, a class organization at the time. I remember Bobby Dews ran the minor leagues. And he called me up and said, look, we're going to send you home, but we're going to bring you back to spring training uh, next year and you know get healthy and uh, you'll have a chance to make a club, which I thought was really classy of them. And then Sandy Johnson called me up that same winter and said, hey, why don't you come on up to the uh, – to the offices and that was back at the old old place where they their offices were in a separate building in Arlington and uh, so I went up there and you know went in his office and and Sandy and his his, uh, his normal uh, gruff self said uh, you know hey Mike good to see you what the hell are you going to do with your life and <laughs> and you know at the time I said well I'm, I'm going back to play for the Braves and uh, Sandy you know explained to me said look he said you know you're a catch and throw guy and now you can't throw and he goes you know your time's going to be limited on the field he goes you need to look at uh, some other options and he was great about it and 
uh, talked me into going to uh, Florida for scout school, um, which uh, was a great move uh, in hindsight. But at the time, I wasn't ready to do it. Uh, I talked to my dad. My dad talked to some people. And uh, my dad gave me the advice. He said, what do you have to lose? It's just a, it's a you know, couple weeks in Florida. And uh, get a feel for it and see if you might like it. And so I, I was smart enough to listen to him and Sandy and went down to the scout school. And, uh, and uh, it was longer than a couple of weeks. And I thought it was going to be there like a day or two. I brought my golf clubs thinking I was going to go out and play golf and everything. And I never played a day of golf. It was uh, it was a lot of hard work. But uh, I soon realized that that I didn't know as much as I thought I did about uh, baseball and, and definitely scouting. Well, Sandy, I mean, Sandy's one of the great ones, obviously. Sandy was assistant GM and with the Rangers, still love Sandy. Talked to him a couple of weeks ago. and But then he got into um, working for the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau, right? Wasn't that your first job in scouting? Yeah. At the scout school, it's put on by Major League Baseball, uh, the Scouting Bureau. And uh, every at the time, every organization had the ability to send one candidate to the school. and their instructors were all active scouts. Uh, uh, some of the who's who, Jim Martz uh, and uh, Jim Walton, uh, Carol Sambera, and then the, the late, great Don Priest, who ran the scouting bureau at the time. They ran the school. So, um, you know, the, I, uh, there, at, and I have to look back at it, but at the class I was in, I think there were three guys that ended up being general managers. Um, it, you know, lots of scouting directors, lots of guys that put in 25, 30 years in, in the game and scouting afterwards. So, I mean, it was, it was like going to an Ivy league school, uh, to get your scouting education. And like I said earlier, I can remember writing my reports, going to games and then coming back and looking at my, my reports after Jim Walton would, uh, uh would grade them. And it looked like my old English papers in high school. It was red marks everywhere and I, there was a point in time it was like man i got to get back on the field uh, this is this is not for me i don't understand how to do this well jim i mean jim's a legend jim from yeah. i think shattuck oklahoma shattuck oklahoma usa yes sir Cowboy jim walton always going around driving his cadillac his convertible cadillac he's a legend um and how many years were you in this with the scouting bureau i worked 10 years there Wow, ten years traveling. Uh, it, it, talk about giving a base on 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 scouting. I spent a lot of time with Jim Walton early on, and, and I literally traveled the the world, uh, seeing the best players, international and domestic uh, amateur players, for ten years. Yeah, didn't you tell me you didn't give a good grade to either? Uh... Albert Pujols or Derek Jeter? <laughs> no, Derek Jeter. I had him as a, a, a second rounder. Um, and right. if you go back, if you if you Google or, or go on YouTube, there's a video of him in high school uh, playing in a game, taking infield. And that's actually video I took. No way. And, uh, and, you know, I missed him a little bit, but uh, little. I still had him in the draft at least. You can't get them all right, Mikey. You can't get them no, all right. No, you can't. Yeah, heck, you, if you get half of them right, you're doing great. All right. And then so – how did you transition from uh, working for the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau into being a video coordinator? Well, the, uh, the year that uh, USA Baseball decided to uh, use professional players, I was still working with the Bureau. 
And uh, I was asked to go to Tucson, Arizona and uh, help with the, uh, the tryouts. We, we, we would bring players in and uh, they were minor leaguers and um, they hired a staff of coaches and we would bring guys in. And then eventually we were tasked with putting that team together that was going to go to Winnipeg, Canada for the Pan American Games. And you had to finish in the top two, I believe it was, so we could uh, qualify for the Olympics. And at the time, there was a lot of pushback from from the professional ranks. Uh, you know, the major league teams didn't want to send prospects. Uh, they couldn't send actual big leaguers. Uh, there was, you know, a lot, lot of politics involved. So um, Sandy Alderson and Pat Gillick uh, ran that for uh, the major league baseball part of it. And uh, they were great at, at their job and they understood all of what was going on. And so they put together a great staff of, of coaches. Uh, Buddy Bell was the manager. Uh, Marcel Latchman uh, was the, the pitching coach. Um, it, it was a big league staff. And so I was part of that. And then when we uh, finished up, Buddy offered me a job. He had taken the job with the Rockies uh, soon after we finished that. And um, he offered me a job to come to work for him. And uh, at first I asked him, you know, what was I going to do? And he said, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and so uh, we f ended up figuring it out. And, and that's how I became the video coordinator for the Rockies. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, he, he just knew that he wanted you at some role on his staff. And, you know, a guy like Buddy Bell, who's had almost every position in the game from player to front office guy to, you know, managing the big leagues. He was my manager with the, with the Rockies when I got traded. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But uh, just the fact that he just wanted you and didn't care about the role, that says a lot about, uh, you know, what he thought about you and your work. Yeah, Jeff is, and, and Dave, as, as we go through this, you'll see the common thread is I've been extremely fortunate to be around some great baseball men, great men in, in, in any way in their own right, but great baseball men. And, and uh, I, I, the only thing I was smart enough to do, I think, was to listen. And uh, uh, but Buddy was one of those guys. He's extremely well respected in the game. And, you know, the, the lineage that he comes from and uh, his his boys and his dad, you know, the the, the bell name is, is right up there with with all of them as far as that the Griffies and the Boas of the world. Well, speaking of great men, that's a great segue. Uh, let's talk about Carl Hamilton. Your dad, um, if I'm not mistaken, was the first ever video coordinator in the major leagues. Is that correct? Yeah, as far as I know, and as far as anybody else knows, that uh, he was the he was the first one that really you know to, to figure out how to uh, utilize the technology back then was minimal, but uh, in, in order to uh, in order to to help players and scouting and, and things like that, but. Uh, um, his his story is pretty it's a pretty cool story uh he owned a he was in the military he had a baseball background but he was a, uh, a, actually had a, a bigger background in the military and in law enforcement so when he retired uh, from that he started a security company that utilized uh, closed circuit television cameras and he got a call one day from a friend who uh was wanting to know if he could install a camera at uh, Arlington Stadium, the old, old Arlington Stadium. And uh, 
the, uh, he went in and they, they installed a camera and, you know, the technology, like I said, wasn't very good, but they had a TV in the bathroom and they were able to see the center field view. Uh, and, and that was the start of, of the first video that, uh, that was being, you know, utilized, uh, you know, Ted Williams did video with, with old cameras and film cameras and things like that, but this was being utilized on a daily basis. Wow. And so it, he worked for Bobby Valentine at first, didn't he? Was that his first manager he worked for? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I recall, I think there was actually some guys there first. Uh, and then Bobby really uh, spearheaded and, and, and came up with more because he owned the restaurants, the sports bars. They had those big giant satellite TV or satellite antennas out at their at their restaurant and uh, they could get other games. And, you know, even back then, you know, very few teams were televised on a daily basis. Uh -huh. um, I'm not even sure the super stations were were up and running then. So, you know, you know, literally you would ask about a pitcher and you didn't know if he was black or white or tall or fat or skinny. You know, you, you had advanced reports, but you didn't know what he looked like. So Bobby, uh, you know, came up with the idea with my dad is, Hey, we, you know, we can, we can start recording these games and then um, showing our players, uh, the other teams that were playing, you know, this is what they look like. This is how they're going about their business and all that. So uh, eventually they built a dish, had a dish installed at, uh, at the old Arlington stadium. And, you know, one dish turned into two and, uh, that one VCR turned, you know, and these VCRs were literally the size of a Buick. Um, and you know, they, they bought one and then they buy a second one and it just became, uh, you know, each year it grew and grew to where now, you know, all 30 clubs have multiple, uh, people that do this and the technology is incredible. Wow. That's crazy. And so. Your dad, <clears throat> I told you earlier I was going to talk about this. I've never, I'm not sure I've ever told you this, but uh, when your dad went um, from the Rangers to the Mariners and started working for the Mariners and Lou Pinella and, and all the great players they had there, and every time we would go play the Mariners, the highlight of me going to Seattle was getting to go see your dad. I made a point every time to go over on Seattle side of the field, which is normally you're not allowed to go over there. And I just go in there and I probably send a message to you or whatever and said, Hey, I need to see your dad and go see your dad. And he would show me his stuff and he would show how he made a video or two of me. And I just couldn't wait to get there to see your dad. Cause your dad is just a, you know, I mean, just an incredible man. And I always looked up to him. Well, that, that, that's really sweet of you to say. I know he always, he always would uh, call me or, or, you know, after we would talk and stuff and he'd mention that you were in town or you had just gotten in town and stuff like that. And he, he thought, uh, thought the world of you, but, uh, you know, that, that was the thing with him was, uh, and it's still to this day, I will run into people or social media will somebody will reach out and, you know, I knew it then, but, uh, now that he's gone, I, I you know, you, you, it's still to this day, people will say, you know, Carl, man, your dad, Carl, he was the greatest guy. He was the best guy. Players would tell me, oh, man, I owe this to him. And he did this for me. And guys that weren't even uh, in the uh, Mariner organization when he was there, when they were uh, with other teams, they would tell me about how he would send them a note or, you know, uh, it was just, uh, it's great to hear because, uh, you know, we, of course, I'm, I'm biased, but, but he was not only a great dad, but he was a, he was a really great baseball person. Yeah, I've never heard anybody say one negative word about about your pops, man. He just he just uh, was just a 
one of a kind. And so I'm, I'm guessing you learned a lot of your stuff from him. And then now your career starts with the Rockies under Buddy Bell. You got some great players that you worked with over the years with the Rockies. Um, one Hall of Famer already in Larry Walker. Looks like a good chance that uh, our buddy Todd Helton will hopefully get elected this year. So you got to see some some really good hitters. And what was the type of stuff that you would talk to these guys about when you're going over their video or you would just show them their video? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I, uh, to, to kind of go back, my first spring training, I remember, and I, I, I tell this story quite a bit. Uh, uh, one of the things that I was asked to do was to kind of coordinate our advanced scouting reports. Uh, you know, gather all the information. Of course, we made videos for the players so they could watch. Um, but we also had written reports that our, our, our scouts would send in. And um, uh, I asked Buddy, I said, Buddy, look, I played a couple years. I've been around the game. I've scouted. But, but why are these guys going to listen uh, to me? You know, what, what, why would they listen to me? Uh, you know, and, and his answer, he said, they won't at first. But once they realize how much you care, he goes, then they'll start to listen. And that stuck with me, um, and and he was a hundred percent right. Uh, early on, um, you know, I was nervous, I was scared, I didn't know the video coordinating job. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have my dad that I could call up any you know any time and say, "How do you do this? What equipment do I need? What you know? What do you do when this happens?" But I also, you know, I grew up in a clubhouse, uh, but I was a kid growing up in the clubhouse, and no one really expected much of me. And now all of a sudden I have this job where I'm in a big league clubhouse and, and we've got some some really good players and I'm trying to make my way, you know, not only with our staff, but also with our with our players. So the thing that Buddy said about, uh, you know, making him understand that you care, that uh, that went a long way. And so did you offer these guys advice or did you wait for them to ask you your opinion on stuff? Yeah, no, I, I, I kept my mouth shut. I just was there. Um, and uh, the, uh, Marcel uh, Latchman, who I mentioned earlier, and who was later you know, hired by, by Buddy, and then Clint Hurdle, who had been on the staff with Jim Leland, um, who, and he stuck around. They both took me under their wing and, uh, and gave me a lot of great advice, and I kind of followed their lead. And um, because of that, uh, you know, I slowly – got to the point where I felt, uh, you know, every now and then when I would build a relationship with a player, I would feel more and more comfortable maybe offering something. But to answer your question, no, I, I waited for, for the coaches or, or for the players. I waited for them to ask, and then, and then I would give them my opinion. Well, let's talk about Helton. So Helton, I don't know if Larry Walker was a big video guy or whatever. He seems like he's the kind of guy that just went out there and did it, but if Helton came in because he was ticked off at uh, getting called out on strikes or if he you know, got under a ball and popped it up and wanted to see his at-bat, do you remember some of the conversations you guys had? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, early on, the conversations took uh, were totally different than the ones later. You know, after our, our relationship had evolved, uh, our conversations, you know, would, would, would be a lot more poignant. Um, but, uh, you know, or, or, you know, Todd was, uh, and you know, this Jeff, you played with him, you saw him as, as a, what a competitive uh, person he is. And, uh, you know, that, that he just failure was not acceptable at all, which, you know, all athletes are that way, but, 
but some are wired a little differently. And Todd was one of those guys. Um, you know, he just bottom line did not take, you know, any kind of failure, uh, uh well, and he expected, uh, you know, perfection. And, um, but the one thing that sticks out with me with Todd was early on, um, we had started to build a, a, a relationship as far I felt like he trusted me a little bit. He told me, he said, look, you can tell me anything that you see, just don't talk about my hands. And uh, I'm like, well, why is that? And he said, because my hands are the reason why I'm in the big leagues. And, and that's why I hit. And uh, if I start to think about that, if I start to think about how I put my hands to the ball, uh, he goes, that, that, that's not going to be good. And um, so that, that was a, a, you know, a learning experience for me was to, to, you know, define the keys that these players uh, uh, needed to hear or wanted to hear and then leave the rest of the stuff alone. Right. And I, I remember when uh, you were probably just, if I remember correctly, right about when you started that job is when we started using the, compact discs instead of the VCRs, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, st- we started to burn CDs uh, or DVDs, uh, like I think my second year there. Uh, but my first year, everything was VHS uh, yeah. tapes. We used to lug them around and send them to It was players. kind of fun to go back and, and, and um, rewind one of those and get exactly where you wanted to go as opposed to a, a, a DVD or, or CD and uh, I remember a funny story I had with the Red Sox when I ran all the way from the dugout all the way back to the to the video room in the back of the weight room, and uh, my good buddy Billy Broadbent was the video guy doing your job back there, and and uh, you know I thought I got called out on a bad pitch, and so I asked him to rewind it, and so he rewound it, and I was very upset, and you know I didn't really want to hear what he had to say, but. Uh, I was like, man, that's a ball. And he goes, I don't know, Frito, that's a pretty good pitch. And I looked right at him, glared at him, and I said, listen to me, Billy Broadbent. I said, I don't care if you think it's a freaking strike or not. If I say it's a ball, it's a ball, you got it. And his eyes bugged out. He goes, all right, Frito, all right, Frito. <laughs> so now, every time I see Billy Broadbent, I was like, Billy, what was that pitch? He's like, oh, that was a ball, Frito, that was a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very similar, you were actually on the team. I had a, a very similar ex, uh, experience with Buddy uh, in St. Louis. We were at the old the old St. Louis ballpark, and I can't remember the exact situation, but you know, you knew Buddy, and Buddy uh, uh, could get a little hot under the collar, especially when he thought umps were missing calls. And, and uh, he yells up to me, uh, you know, uh, Milo. They used to call me Milo. And Milo, was that a, you know, effing strike? And I was like, yeah, I think it was a pretty good pitch, buddy. And he looked at me. He goes, who the F are you working for? <laughs> and uh, and I said, well, buddy, you asked me. And I told you the truth. And he just stormed off. And there for a little while, I was a little nervous. But uh, luckily, we had a relationship where I knew that he would calm down and everything would be all right afterwards. He was pretty intense during those games. I remember that for sure. But uh, I want I want to talk a little bit about uh, Clint Hurdle. And uh, Hurdle was a great hitting coach. Uh, he was a hitting coach. I was there when I got um, traded to the Rockies. Spent two months with the Rockies, and Hurdle was the hitting coach, buddy, the manager. We had a great staff, and I'll never forget uh, you were doing your stuff. You had the cameras all situated, and um, my estranged stepbrother started showing up at the ballpark and somehow getting in. And I walked out of the 
the dugout, I'm sure you remember this, I walked out of the dugout one day for stretch, and uh, all of a sudden, this voice from above the dugout goes, yo, bro, and I and I just kind of froze, and I turned around, I look, and there's this guy with, uh, wearing a, you know, a wife beater with yo-yo um, tattooed on his neck, and I recognized him, that it was my stepbrother that I hadn't seen in probably 15 years, and I was like, oh, hey, and he goes, yo, bro, so proud of you, man. I don't want nothing from you, but uh, your love and a jersey. Peace out. And I ran out the stretch, and I was like, "Oh my God, <laughs> what am I going to do?" Uh, but Hurdle and you, Hurdle would walk in the in the dugout, and I'd be in the dugout afraid to walk out because I might get yelled at by my stepbrother again and embarrass me in front of the team. And I'd tell Hurdle, I was like, "Hurdle." How's it look? Or I'd tell you before I went out in the field because I knew you could move the cameras around and see who was in the in the stands. And I'd say, Hurdle, how's it look? And he's like, yeah, it's not looking good. So I knew that I couldn't come out of the dugout until like the clock turned to 440 when stretch started. Otherwise, I was going to get yelled at by my stepbrother. You remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember that very well. Hurdle, was a, he, was a, he was a player's coach, man. He, uh, you know, he did what he needed to do to get his hitters right and uh, and build their trust. And uh, I, I do remember our little using the cameras and then uh, Hurdle would give you the thumbs up or thumbs down, basically, so you could come out and stretch. But, uh, that that was a lot of fun. That was uh, when, when we traded for you. Uh, I remember Dan uh, O'Dowd had called down to me and, and told me that we – uh, might be getting you and um, he had a couple of his guys ask me some questions about you and things like that I remember how you know excited I was that you, you know, there was a chance that we were going to get you um, and then uh, we traded Mike Lansing for you uh, and I think we were in Milwaukee uh, when we did it and uh, you showed up and, and that was a that was a, a whirlwind that last couple months of the season. We had a little I bit remember you had a hell of a year too. You you, you hit like nine thousand fours. I think I can't remember exactly what it was, but you hit like three fifty, I think three fifty six or something like that. But I only had like ninety at bats. But what I think you know where Hurdle made a huge impact on me was um, having never played in the National League was in the pinch hitting department because you know I hadn't pinch hit a lot in, during my career, but. I do remember going up to home plate and thinking everything is on me now. I've got to win this game for my team and put pressure on myself and it makes it hard to succeed in that, in that role. And so hurdle said, listen, you go up there and you get your swings in. He goes, it's not your fault. We're losing. All these other guys have had three or four at bats each and they're the reason we're losing. So don't feel like you have to win the game. Every time you go into pinch hit, just go in there have a good AB, get your swings in, and just let it, you know, whatever happens, happens. And I ended up going nine for 20 that year, hit 450 as a pinch hitter. And it's just because of, you know, what Hurdle told me as, as far as the mindset. Yeah, the, you know, the, and that's the thing that a lot of people just don't, they don't understand because how things have changed is, is that so much of, of what could be a pivotal moment in your career, um, is is more about your approach or or more how you uh handle uh the failure um and and having guys like that give you that advice you know uh, i i'm sure that uh, that that still goes on but i'm also sure that somebody might have given you mechanical advice instead um and you know all oh, your hands are too high or oh you need to do this now and and 
Instead, it was, this was just a mental cue for you. You know, hey, Jeff, take a deep breath and relax. You know, you got nothing to lose. You're supposed to fail, actually. Um, and that took a lot of pressure off of you. And, and then it allowed your ability to come out. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to see more of that in our game. And, I, and, and, and like I said, this is not a knock on any coaches out there because I'm sure a lot of guys still do it. But, but I also know that a lot of it has become mechanical-based. Yeah, and I'm, I talk about this a lot. Um, I had some great hitting coaches during my career. So fortunate to have Rudy Hadamio and Clint Hurdle and Jim Rice, Cito Gaston. I had uh, Gary Gaetti, Brooke Jacoby. Um, Willie Upshaw. I, mean, I had some great hitting coaches who had great careers in the big leagues. And 15 years of my career, not one of them ever talked, talked to me about my mechanics. It was, you know, if I'm doing anything wrong, I'm dropping my hands maybe at the last second, or maybe I'm pulling off, my shoulder's coming out, or I'm not getting my foot down in time. But it was never anything more than that. And now, I mean, it seems like everything's about mechanics. I made a silly video yesterday about it, about there's so many different things that these guys are thinking about in their swing. And to me, it just makes it confusing and overcomplicates stuff. And this game's difficult enough, man. When you step in that batter's box, you better have a clear head and have your game plan because you can't, you can't be thinking about your mechanics. Yeah, I, I've seen it evolve. Um, you know, I, I and I agree with you. Uh, you know, even though I was entrenched in video, uh, most of the time we use the video to to try to make a point. Um, uh, a lot of times, the video was there to try to just make the player feel more comfortable. Um, but I, I've seen the the evolution of, especially with with hitters, that the outcome there was always a mechanical issue. If the outcome was bad, um, then there's got to be a mechanical issue. And then we would, you know, you search for that. And if you search anyone's swing, you're going to find flaws in it. Um, and, and to me, that was just, that's the opposite of what you want to be doing. You, you, you know, you don't go back and look for mechanical flaws when you hit a, a ball down the line for a double. Uh, you only do it when you fail, and and we know we fail in this game a ton. So um, that that that's the big thing I've seen with hitting uh, is that a lot of guys are, especially on the amateur level, they're trying to build the perfect swing instead of trying to build the perfect hitter. You know, uh, and and you're never going to build a perfect hitter or a perfect swing. But uh, to me, this game is still about hitting. It's not about swinging. And um, that, that's the thing that I try to tell our hitters, the kids in my organization, the ones that I'm around, uh, the ones that will listen to me is, is this is not about building your swing. This is a lot about learning how to be a good hitter. Yeah. And we, we had a bunch of good hitters on that team. I mean, you, you, well, we had Jeff Cirillo had a great year. Jeffrey Hammonds had a great year. Nephi Perez. He had um, Helton, Larry Walker. Uh, Brent Main was a good hitter and not no two of those guys had the same swing. No two of those guys had the same key keys to their swing or what they're thinking about or approach. And they just found a way to be successful. And that's what I tell people all the time is like, you can't just copy one person that you see as being successful and think you're going to be able to hit like that person. It's not that easy. Or we would have all done that. I would have copied Nomar or Juan Gonzalez or Palmero, Will Clark, or, you know, if it was that easy to just copy somebody, Major league players who are very gifted 
should be able to copy a guy easier than a 10 or 12 year old. So quit trying to develop this perfect swing and try and swing like Aaron Judge or some of these other guys because you're not that person. You don't have his skills, his his traits, his vision, anything like that, his timing. So you got to find out what works for you and focus on being the best version of you. Yeah, that that uh, exactly right. Um, you know, I, I use this. I, I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, I've been around. I think the last time I counted, uh, nine Hall of Famers. If you count Helton, that'll be ten. And and half of those, or more than half of those, were hitters. Edgar Martinez, King Griffey Jr., uh, Larry Walker, um, Pudge. You know, so so some guys that have, have really done a lot in the game. And um, like you said, they they're all different. And Major League Baseball has a ton of resources. And if there is this perfect hitter out there, I think they would have figured it out by now. And, and there's not. If we, we turn on a Major League game and, and we see 18 hitters come up to the plate or 18, 20 hitters come up to play the game, uh, we're going to see all sorts of body types. We're going to see a, a lot of different swings. Uh, you know, the, the common uh, things that I've always seen in the best hitters were uh, most of them had no conscience. Uh, they didn't let the bat from before affect their next at bat. Uh, they all had great memories and recall. Uh, they could tell you things about their at bats from you know past seasons. And I know you're the same way, Jeff. Um, and uh, and then the other thing was some physical characteristics. Uh, most of them were extremely aggressive, even though they didn't always swing at the same pitches. They were ready to swing at their pitch. And so I, I consider that being aggressive. And then uh, physically, uh, all of them, especially nowadays, are are strong. Uh, doesn't mean they're the biggest guy in the world. I mean, you know, you were you, a hell of a hitter at, at the highest level, Jeff, and you're not a big guy, but you're a pretty strong guy. And um, and th- those were the common traits I saw, not uh, a perfect swing or or you know a perfect setup or or any of that. It was just. Uh, these guys were, were were gifted, and I think nowadays what happens is we just don't want to admit that everyone's not gifted. We want we want to assume that everyone is a gifted player, and if we just give them a good swing, they're going to be a great hitter. And and that's just not true. I I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more because we've seen guys, Mikey, where guys who had you know didn't have very good swings. Butch Husky didn't have very good swing. But he was a pretty good hitter for, for the Rockies. And, and I've seen guys with beautiful swings. One guy who comes to mind is Dan Peltier. Dude had an unbelievable left-handed swing. And he couldn't hit at the big league level. And it, who knows why. It wasn't because of his swing. It was probably his confidence or his approach. But just having a good swing, and I blame golf for this, doesn't mean you're going to be good at baseball. There's a lot of guys I play golf with, and I don't have a great golf swing. And they have these pretty golf swings, and I can whoop them because I, you know, you find a way to get the ball in the hole. But that's another story. I, I want to talk about some of the guys who interned under you, <laughs> uh, the who's who of uh, a lot of Major League Baseball front offices who interned or worked for you uh, when you were the video coordinator for the Rockies. Yeah, you know, we, we spoke briefly about him earlier. Uh, Dan O'Dowd was the general manager of the Rockies when I was hired. And uh, Dan had come over from Cleveland. And I think Cleveland and, and that group over there were way ahead of the game uh, as far as, as bringing in young, smart uh, uh, 
employees that, and, and involved them in their baseball operations department. And when I got there, you know, Josh Burns, who's a vice president or, or might even be higher than that with the Dodgers now, he was a, he was an assistant general manager under Dan and, um, uh, Thad Levine was there, uh, and, uh, dad brought in, I think two years later, we would have, they would have interns and young employees come down and work the speed of pitch for us. And, uh, the first guy to do it, uh, uh, ended up going to work for Scott Boris. And then the next guy was John Daniels. Um, and, uh, JD was great. Uh, he, he was, you know, even at that point in time in his career, uh, everyone in that room knew that he had, uh, there was something special about him. And, uh, it was, I think literally four years after the first time he did that for us, he was the general manager of the, of the Rangers. But, um, uh, looking back, Michael Hill, who now is, uh, is an executive of major league baseball, a former big league GM, uh, uh, was, was part of that group. Uh, uh, Jerry DePoto who's with the Mariners now. Um, uh, Billy uh, Epler, who had just recently left the Mets. Uh, all these guys were guys that Dan and, and his, his, uh, people had brought into the organization. So, um, and, and then, you know, back then, a lot of these guys came in with that analytics mindset and that, um, you know, inquisitive uh, uh, way of about doing business. But the, the great thing then was they respected the baseball lifers. Um, they didn't come in a room and say, this is how we're going to do it or what you're doing is wrong or any of those things. They would come in the room, sit in a corner and listen. And and they respected the guys, the Toby Harris and, and you know, the Mar Foley's and, and people like that that would speak in these in these organizational meetings. And these guys would eat up the information and then they would go off and try to figure out a way to to make us better. And I, that's where we've seen the tide turn quite a bit, Jeff, is and Dave, is that I think, um, you know, the, the guys that weren't entrenched in the game didn't grow up in the game. Uh, I don't, uh, and I, you know, this is not a blanket statement, uh, but I, I think there's a, a, there, the respect for the the ex player for the lifer is is not there anymore. Yeah, I agree, and I I can't stand that part of it. I know um, I don't know how many years ago it was, but eight to ten years ago, I was at the Major League Baseball winter meetings, and I was talking to, I think it was Clipper uh, Dave Klipstein, and and. Uh, you know, he's been in scouting for probably 30 years and, and some young kid walks by and he goes, you see that kid right there? And I said, yeah. He goes, he's our head analytics guy. He said, he's got more say than I have. And we just hired him. And to me, that's where they've made the mistake. And um, I know as players, uh, when they first start bringing in the analytics guys or the, we called them the nerds, when they started coming in and we didn't really want to hear what they had to say. I don't say, think that we ever mistreated them or disrespected them, but now it seems like it's the other end of the spectrum where these guys have no respect for men who've spent 30, 40 years in the game. And because it's all going back to the numbers and that's all they care about is the numbers. And it seems to me like they don't take any blame when things don't go right. Yeah, the key, the organizations and the people that are able to bridge the gap, you know, like I mentioned, Dan, but I, I remember Thad Levine being one of those guys. 
you know, he could go sit up in the uh, in the, the boardroom and talk numbers and and grasp everything and have a great understanding. But he could also come down to the clubhouse and uh, BS with a player or, you know, talk to a coach or a clubby or whatever and, and have the same the same impact and relationship. And the teams that, that understand that and promote that, I think those are the ones that, that uh, we see have the long term success. Um, you know, I'm not against analytics. It's another tool. It's, uh, but like any tool, uh, you can't build a house with just a hammer. And, uh, you know, you, you need to have, you need to have a lot of tools and, and utilize them all. And I, I, I think that's where, uh, you know, guys like you and I, we see that's where the change of the game is. The, the things that we bring or the things that, uh, that we, we feel like we have, uh, to offer aren't coveted anymore or aren't coveted as much as they used to be. Yeah, you're right. Um, we talked a little bit um, the other. We've talked about this quite a bit about the you being a catcher by trade. Um, a lot has changed um, in the catching department, especially uh, receiving, and uh, now you know even with the the remote controls and the calling pitches and stuff like that. But the uh, you talked to me once about I think it was Dan O'Dowd who. who had the, the one of the first guys to come up with the idea of uh, getting catchers who get more strikes called, kind of the stealing strikes. And, and do you remember when that first started with the Rockies? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. I was uh, actually scouting then, and uh, Dan, uh, like I said, he was always ahead of the game. Uh, it seemed like when I was there, um, you know, looking for the edge. Uh, you know, that was one thing we had to do in Colorado, uh, is we had to figure out ways. Uh, to do something differently because of our, you know, playing there just simply is different than playing anywhere else. Um, and, and one of the things that was brought up was we had, we always had interns watching video and, and analyzing different things. And it was the, it was stealing strikes, which is, you know, it, there's definitely an art to this and it, 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 but it's, it didn't happen that day and it didn't happen last year. Uh, this has been every since baseball has been around, there's been pitchers and catchers that are better at getting calls than, than other ones. Um, but um, I didn't believe in the fact, and I still don't believe in the fact that just being a receiver back there and presenting the pitch uh, that you're fooling good umpires. And, and at the professional level, that's what those guys are. They're the best in the world. Um, I, I think pitchers get, calls because they consistently can throw the ball where they want to throw it and pitchers don't get calls because they can't throw it where they want to throw it and I think good catchers do a good job of positioning themselves to present the ball as as best as they can but my argument from talking to big league umpires is where do you call the pitch and the ones I've talked to said well I start making that judgment just like a hitter does I see the ball out of the pitcher's hand and I start making that judgment and then my brain, you know, comes up with a final, final call, but it's not when the catcher catches the ball, it's out in front. But, um, you know, that, that's just my belief. I think uh, we've made way too big a deal about uh, presentation, one knee catching. I don't have a problem with guys catching on one knee. I have a problem when guys don't catch the ball and when guys can't block the ball. Uh, because to me, that was what I was always taught, that uh, your number one job, that's why they call you a catcher. It's to catch the baseball. Right. And if you call a pitch, a breaking ball, and you know this is the, this pitcher's out pitch, and he likes to bounce it, 
And if you call it, it's your job to block it. There's no excuse for not blocking it. And and what I see now is, um, you know, the winning run on third base, and you call a breaking ball, and it goes to the backstop, and the game's over. And I just don't see how anybody can argue that stealing two or three strikes a game is worth you losing a game on a wild pitch. Yeah, I'm sure there's a number for it, but um, I, I would like to see how many stolen pitches uh, are, are equal to one run. Um, and, you know, I don't care if a catcher stands on his head and can catch and do a great job. That's so be it. I, that, that's fine. Uh, I just I just, you know, not a, a huge fan on the emphasis being so much on trying to steal strikes. To me, it's about catching the ball. It's the pitcher's job to throw the ball over the plate. It's the catcher's job to catch it and keep the ball from going to the backstop or keeping the runner from advancing. Yeah, and, and, I, and think, I always will believe that's his number one job. Right. And and I think the thing that bothers me the most is, um, you know, big league pitchers, for the most part, can throw the ball pretty close to where they want to. They don't generally miss by two or three or four feet. But now we have these kids, you know, young kids that are just learning the game and just learning to catch. And they've got a pitcher on the mound that you never know where this guy's going to throw the ball. So teaching them, you know, to start out with a one knee catching where it's hard to move and, you know, it might work if you got Greg Maddox who can pinpoint a pitch, but you got a 12 year old or 10 year old who can't throw it, you know, hit the broad side of a barn and you got this kid set up looking like a big league catcher back there. He's got no chance of blocking the ball. Yeah, I think we're doing a disservice when we're trying to teach 10 and 12 year olds to catch like 28 year olds. Um, you know, we all have to build a foundation in this game and the foundation for baseball is the fundamentals of the game. And, and I, I just did a catching uh, camp with Mike Clements, who's a, a coach with the uh, Navarro Junior College. And I thought he did a great job um, of, of relaying this in the same message I have is that you know, if you want to catch on one knee, that's fine. But you still have to have a good base of a foundation to catch on both feet. And you still have to be a really good receiver before we worry about throwing and blocking. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of what drives all this, Jeff and, and Dave, is, is the lesson game. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of guys giving lessons. And, and I do that. I own a facility. I have lots of uh, coaches that work with us that give lessons. I'll, I'll occasionally will work with someone. So I'm not against the lesson, but uh, in, in a lot of people, in order to sell these lessons, they have to sell things. They have to sell, you know, mechanics and one knee catching and, and you know, all, all these other things that go around it. Instead of when you're working with a 10, 11, 14 year old kid, you need to be teaching the fundamentals and the basics of this game. Give them something to be able to build on. Not try to teach them to catch like a, a you know ten year veteran that's catching in the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, I know you see that a lot with the stuff I do on social media. As far as the really, most of it's the hitting instruction where these guys are, are teaching all these absurd things to kids. And it, and you're right, it's just uh, you know, oh hey, take this gimmick or you take this hitting tool and this dog toy, and we're going to teach you how to do this because we saw Mookie Betts do a drill like this, or we saw. This guy, you know, this one knucklehead's got a propeller. He's teaching kids how to hit with a propeller. Um, and, and you're right. It, it's just they need something to sell, something different. Um, and we talked, we've talked about this, the FOMO aspect of it where, oh, if we're not doing this, we're going to fall behind. And, 
I mean, it drives me crazy. You know that. Yeah, you, you know, use sports as a business, and and don't let anyone fool you that it's not. Um, but there's nothing wrong with it being a business if you're giving a good product and and you're doing what's right. I, I tell our guys all the time, and I believe this: we're being paid not only for our information, but more importantly, we're being paid for our honesty. And um, you know, it, it take it just like when Buddy Bell told me they're they're not going to listen to you until they trust you. The same thing on the youth side is 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 our job is to build relationships and build trust, and and help a kid reach his potential not only physically, but uh, also socially and mentally. Um, you know, most of these players that play, uh, as you know, Jeff and Dave, these these guys, their careers are no, years are numbered. They're they're most of them are going to be done when they're finished in high school. Uh, some will be lucky enough to play in college, and then a very very few will be lucky enough to play after that. So um, when mom and dad are paying us, they're not just paying us to teach them the X and O's of baseball. They're, they're paying us to be honest with their, their, their kids and, and also to teach them some life skills. Yeah, and teach them about respect and honesty and integrity and leadership, something that, that I stress a lot with uh, my buddy, Colonel Craig Flowers. Now you get to meet my buddies, Colonel Flowers and Colonel Donahue and um, having friends who are, you know, spend lifetimes in the military that everything's about being selfless and how to be a leader and how to um, have integrity and, and and to teach leadership to these kids is way more important than any of these, um, you know, special hitting styles or techniques that people are teaching. And I know you do that well, Mikey. And, and anytime anybody asks me in the Metroplex about a select baseball organization, that I would recommend. You're the one that I always mention. Always push them toward you. I know you can't take everybody, but I know that, you know, having known you for 35 years, that you're not going to go out there and do that stuff, that you're going to go out there and teach these kids the way they should be taught. And, um, you know, that's just something that, uh, you know, I'm proud to call you my buddy. I know we've been friends for 35 years. You run a heck of a select baseball organization. I don't know if you want to talk any bit about uh you know about your organization in the dfw area the, the did you change it from collin county baseball to the to the canes organization or is it both now yeah well the the, the uh the facility is is uh still collin county baseball academy um and, but our our teams are are the canes teams uh it's part of the national organization we made that move a couple of years ago um, it's been a great partnership. Um, it's allowed us to do some things and provide some things for our players locally that we weren't able to do. Um, you know, the, the game is, is the youth levels uh, as, as they migrate towards high school and the recruiting and all the things that are going on have changed. Uh, they continue to change. That's one of our biggest things that uh, that I, I try to do is, is gather information and speak to guys that, that are making those decisions um, at the college level. In the professional level, so I can offer the the real information. As you know, Jeff, you're involved in social media. You know, social media is a great tool, but unfortunately, there's so much misinformation out there, and uh, and and parents don't know any better. It's not their fault, but there's no manual. There's uh, you know, there's no book that they can read or or podcast they can listen to uh, all the time. Yours is helping out a lot, and there's other good ones out there. Uh, speaking with Dave, but. There's just so much misinformation. And, and, you know, as a parent, you guys know this. I know this going through this. I, I spent 30 some years in the game professionally 
And I still have anxiety on uh, when my son was growing up, am I doing the right thing? Are we teaching the right things? You know, is he playing for the right team? So I can't imagine the anxiety that the parent that who might be a lawyer or accountant or a plumber or something is going through who doesn't have the same experience. And, and that's a big thing that we try to offer is, is um, uh, we try to be very, very truthful with the players. And but uh, we, we definitely give them the, the best information possible. Well, I know that's right. And uh, I do appreciate you coming on here today, Mikey. It's been a long time coming. Um, we've uh, you know had a great relationship. I recently kind of moved away, just kind of pay you back for this, all those times when when you moved away from where I moved to follow you. So now it's uh, <laughs> Mansfield. I moved to Mansfield. You moved away. I was like, man, dude, every time I move by him, he's moving somewhere else. So I recently moved to Maryland. I'll be back in Texas in 10 days for a few weeks. But uh, I, I do appreciate you coming on here and your honesty. Um, love you and uh, and Meredith and Max and McKenzie. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, doing some- – you know, possibly a camp here in the next few months with you and uh, just continue to teach these kids the basic fundamentals of the game, let them develop a love for the game and, uh, you know, and have fun. That's it. the key is to have fun. If they have fun, they'll want to keep doing it. Yeah, Jeff, you, you know how I feel. I love you like a brother. You know, I, I, we've like we've established, we've known each other and been through a ton. We've seen our kids grow up and and uh, gone through, uh, you know, uh, deaths in, in the family and births and, and, and pretty much everything you can go through in life. Uh, uh, the one thing, you know, I, a lot of people, it's funny, I run across people and, uh, they, you know, they see one or two of your arguments on Twitter or, or, or things and they're like, why is he, you know, why is he always so angry? And, and when I explain to him that you might be the nicest guy I've ever met, uh, <laughs> that if one of your biggest faults is you are too nice. Um, they, they all look at me, you know, like, oh, you, you don't, you must not know this guy very well. And, you know, I, I tell them you, you would give your shirt off, uh, off your back, literally, if it, you thought it was going to help someone. And that the reason why that you are and what you do is because you truly do love the game and you truly appreciate what the game did for you and your family. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, it, it, you don't have to agree with everything Jeff says, uh, or, or does, but I, I can tell you his heart's in the right way. So, um, um, you know, I, I, I can't thank you enough for our relationship. Uh, the funny thing with this podcast, Dave, this is no different than what Jeff and I will do in a drive on a phone call where I may be driving back to Salina or he's driving somewhere to Oklahoma to go hunting or something. We'll have the same type of conversation. We just, just have probably a few music, more four-letter right? words. Just, yeah, just maybe a few more four-letter words involved. But <laughs> but uh, we have this. We've had tons and tons of these uh, these conversations over the years. That's true. That's true. And I appreciate you saying that, Mikey. And uh, you know, it reminded me of something. Uh, I know you got to Mikey. Um, I was privileged. When Mikey came up to Southeastern, and. Um, when I got uh, recognized for a distinguished alumni, I appreciated that. And we had played a little golf and Colonel Flowers and Colonel Donahue came and Joe Don came. And, you know, it was really great getting my friends together. And I mentioned to Joe Don, I said, Hey, I, I can't wait for you to meet my buddies. And I'm pretty sure you'd met Joe Don before, but he had never met Colonel Donahue or Colonel Flowers. And I said, yeah, I think you're really going to like him. And, and the exact thing he said to me was, Oh, I know I'll like him. He says, if you like them, I'll like them. 
And that meant a lot to me because it's true. And I knew that if, if you said, hey, Jeff, I want to introduce you to this guy. You know, he's a good guy. I know he's a good guy. Immediately, by you telling me he's a good guy or a good friend or a good person, I, that's all I need to hear. And when you have those type of friends in your life, you know, you, you surround yourself with good people and uh, you work together and, and you have these life, these lasting relationships that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if we don't talk for a month, Mikey, the next time we talk, it's going to be just like we, we pick up right where we left off. So I appreciate you saying those kind words about me. I try to be a good guy. Most people that I argue with on social media, um, you know, I get the negative stuff and I say, well, you know, if you ask one of my buddies, he'd probably tell you I was a good guy. You, yeah, you're definitely a good guy. I do appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I do appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you when I get home. For those of you who want to follow my social media, you can find me at shegone03 on Twitter, Certified Hitting Guru on Instagram, Jeffrey Fry on Facebook, also Jeff Fry on LinkedIn. And I will be sharing this podcast on my new Twitter, Shegone Pod, at Shegone Podcast. I appreciate it, Dave. Uh, thanks for uh, for everything and letting me start back this podcast. I'm excited about some of the, the guests I have coming down the road that I never got to uh, who didn't have computers before and couldn't get on. But uh, I look forward to getting those guys on here and uh, and all the people we're working with. If you'd like to uh, um, talk any more about our sponsors. Take- yeah, boy, that was a wonderful interview, too. You guys are the best. Um, I have nothing to say, but thank you uh, for let me be a part of the interview. I think it was phenomenal. Uh, our audience, our 60,000 subscribers are going to love it. You guys know what to do. You don't need me to tell you. Five stars, write great comments. Won't be hard on this one. Blackout Coffee. Coffee's on Jeff. Uh, make sure that you get his code. Um, that way you get 20% off at checkout. And then Ted Kubiak's book should be an everybody's stocking stuffer list, old school and how to field a ground ball. Uh, two best books, two best baseball books I've read. So uh, with that, I'll turn it back to you, Jeff. And Mike, thanks so much, Mike. That was wonderful. Dave, thank you. That was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Mikey, I appreciate it, buddy. I'll be in touch. I'll give you a shout later. And uh, thank you, Dave. And this is Jeff Fry signing off the She Gone Podcast. She Gone. Let's go to bed.